The much acclaimed film on Winston Churchill, entitled The Darkest Hour, closes with Churchill giving the nation hope. Despite the advance of Germany, the fall of Belgium and France, he proclaimed that Britain, with a mighty effort and trust in God, would defeat Hitler. It was a defining moment in World War II. Hope transformed the nation. People tuned in to the radio each night to hear the Prime Minister address the nation and encourage them in the battle against the fascist regime. And that hope, frail and weak though it was, was realised. In this paragraph, verses 3 to 5, we have the second of seven descriptions of a Christian which the Apostle Peter gives to these first century Christians in current day Turkey. The second description is that Christians are heirs. Thereby, Peter gives them hope. An heir is someone who has been appointed to receive an inheritance, who has a legal entitlement to the property or rank of another. They do not now have the inheritance. They are promised it. And they hope for it. In this opening paragraph, verses 3 to 5, the apostle draws on the common synagogue practice of blessing God at the beginning of the worship service. So here he commences his letter in this exemplary way for us. He blesses God. The phrase, bless be God, is used regularly in the Old Testament. For example, in the book of Psalms, it occurs 12 times. Peter Christianizes that phrase. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, indicating that fuller revelation of the Trinity that we have through the coming of Jesus. But our interest is in the particular reason why he is blessing God in verses 3 to 5. Why is he thanking God in this paragraph? We have no end of things to thank and bless God for. There are multitudes of things that he does in heaven, multitudes of things that he does on earth that we are to praise him for. Many things in his creation around us, many things in his providence among us that we are to bless him for. Myriads of things in our present life, myriads of things in the past in our life to bless God for. So what is he blessing God for in this paragraph? He praises God that God has regenerated these people who will read his letter. That is, that God in heaven by his supernatural power, has given the readers of this letter a new spiritual nature, a new heart. They have a new understanding, a new power in their life, new desires and new interests. They have been born again, he says, spiritually. Can we pause over this point? If we are going to be in heaven, this must also happen to us. What happened to these first century readers what happened, must happen to us in the 21st century. You remember Jesus said to Nicodemus, 
you must be born again. And Jesus made the necessity of the new birth for all clear when he went on to say, except a man, a woman, any person be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We're all born with a sinful nature from our parents. We must receive a spiritual nature from God. Boys and girls, you must be born again. Adults, you must be born again. Seniors, you must be born again. Parents must pray that their children are born again by God the Father. Elders are to pray that everyone on their list is born again. Ministers are to pray that everyone in the congregation is born again. Grandparents are to pray for their families that they are all born again. Congregations are to pray for their community that the mighty power of God will come down and people are born again. That as God sent down his spirit on these readers in Turkey in the first century, he will send down his spirit on every single one of us here and that we all are born again. What a tragedy it is at this time of year. What foolishness is in us for us to be excited only about the supernatural birth of Jesus and not to be concerned about our own supernatural birth by God the Father. The apostle will consider the new birth in more detail at the end of the chapter and therefore so will we. But for now, the apostle focuses on one aspect of Christians as children of God. Children of God, those born again by God, he says, are heirs. There is an inheritance. There is a treasure. There is a wonderful future for everyone who is born again. They are heirs of a glorious inheritance. Our society agrees on this very point. Without a legal will being made out, property passes from the parents to the children in our society. The Apostle Paul makes this point in Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs. But what we are asking is a Christian an heir of and there's three wonderful answers given in this paragraph. Peter uses the Greek, the small Greek word eis, E-I-S, three times. To, unto, or for, it's translated. This is what we're born again unto, for. Uh, he uses it in verse 3, and then in verse 4, and then in verse 5. Verse 3, two. A living hope. Verse 4, 2, an inheritance. Verse 5, 2 or 4, a salvation ready to be revealed. His point is that God's children are heirs. They have a glorious future ahead of them. Let's think first of all of life. Secondly, of inheritance 
And then thirdly, of salvation. Firstly, of life. See in verse number three, to a living hope. Now, if, if you had time to think about this, uh, you would come to the conclusion that this is an odd expression. But as we linger over it, living hope, uh, there's two aspects uh, of our hope which are suggested. One aspect is objective. The phrase living hope means that life is our hope. That we hope for life in all its fullness beyond death. The Christian is hoping for a form of life beyond this life. It is life in the sense that he or she doesn't have now. A brand of life that we are hoping for and do not yet experience. It is something distinct from and greater than the physical and spiritual life that we now have. To a living hope, a hope of life. The life hoped for is thus in this verse connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See the wording to a hope living through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is the type of life that we are hoping for. It is resurrection life. It is life like the resurrection of Jesus. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, our hope of life is that our bodies and the bodies of believing loved ones who have passed on will rise again in a new and glorious type of life. That King Death will be overthrown. That the curse of sin will be overcome by the power and grace and life of God. That we will once more hold the hand of our departed believing loved ones in glory. That we will tussle their hair and look into their face again. That our very lips will kiss the feet of our Savior. That our physical, mental, emotional and the spiritual abilities will be far greater than they are now our life in all its dimensions as we know it now will be turned up to full volume, full throttle, be lived in the red and for all eternity at its maximum, a living hope, a hope of life that we do not now experience. But secondly, there is a subjective element to this. It means real hope. Taken in a subjective sense, living hope means that this is real, certain, true hope. It is not a dead, fake, fallacious, false, fictitious, imagined hope. This is a tremendous strand of God's patrimony to his children. The age of the first century was an age of hopelessness. The writings of the famous Greek playwright Sophocles who died in 406 BC were popular and influential. In his famous Greek tragedy, Oedipus at Colonus, he concluded that the best thing for a human being was, firstly, never to be born, or secondly, to die at birth. A philosophy and outlook, dominant but hopeless. Catullus, the Latin poet who died in 54 BC, wrote that 
though the sun sets and rises again, once our sun sets, there is just the unending night of death. That bleak view of the afterlife, common then, common today among existentialists and materialists, is in contrast to this. The Christian is an heir of and has a true and certain hope of eternal, abundant, glorious life to come. Titus 3.7 puts it like this. Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. What comfort there is here for those grieving departed loved ones at this time of year. Description of heaven is life. Numerous preachers have rightly said that when we hear of their demise, then they will be more alive than they have ever been. Christian hopes for full and abundant life. And for all of us, this hope changes our whole perspective on life. Pliny, he compared our life to a river that starts small and clear. And then as other rivers drain into it, it gets deep and full and usable. But as it nears the ocean, it begins to peter out and becomes weak and is lost in that vast sea. But for the Christian, we're looking forward to life in its fullness. Life in its magnitude that just begins after our death, in the immediate presence of Christ. A hope of glorious life, it lifts our mood, it dampens our fear of death, it comforts our hearts. Secondly, we are heirs of an inheritance in verse 4. To an inheritance. It's a loaded term. The ears of most people prick up when this word is mentioned, inheritance. Wow, how much? So do the ears of the church, not out of thought of increasing the, the, the funds of the church, but rather because this is a central idea in the whole Bible. God promised Abram an inheritance we read in Genesis chapter 12. The promise is repeated in Psalm 37. The meek shall inherit the earth. Partly fulfilled and imperfectly fulfilled in the nation entering and possessing the land of Israel. But the promise awaits its full fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. The heirs of this heavenly inheritance are all who believe in the Lord Jesus. And this inheritance is described by three adjectives in verse number four. Adjectives which are put in negative terms because this inheritance is so very different to the bequests that we witness or experience on earth. All the negative elements of an earthly inheritance are absent from the future inheritance that believers long for. Firstly, imperishable. Large country houses are impressive but perishable, in need of constant repairs, leaks, woodworm, damp, constantly attack those buildings. But our heavenly inheritance is totally free of dry rot, cancer, virus, disease, imperishable. 
undefiled as moral connotations. Some inheritances are built from dirty money, money made by the slave trade or drug dealing. Sometimes to attain a fortune, immoral practices are adopted. But the heavenly estate, the heavenly inheritance of which Christians are heirs, is undefiled and unfading. Some inheritances are squandered and disappear quickly. Others slowly seep away as acre after acre of the estate is sold to cover the costs. Other inheritance drastically fall in value as stocks and shares crash. But the glory of the the heavenly inheritance is that its value, experience and glory will be forever the same, unfading. But what is this inheritance that's mentioned here? The full answer is everything in heaven. The resurrection body, the perfection of body and soul, dwelling in the immediate presence of Christ, beholding the face of God, all of that will be imperishable, undefiled, unfading. I've been reading the biography of Samuel Rutherford uh, this week, and in conjunction with Samuel Rutherford, is that tremendous a hymn, song, poem written by cousins in the 1800s, wife of a free church minister. She pulled together some of the, the final sayings of Samuel Rutherford and, and wrote that a wonderful a hymn, song, poem of about 22 verses. Well worth reading and looking at and pondering over, especially if you're in a time of loss and bereavement. And, and he brings us a corrective here, as, as Rutherford often does as we think of heaven and this point about the inheritance and what it will be like one of the the lines say says the bride eyes not her garment but her dear saviour's face she will not gaze at glory but on the King of Grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And it is a corrective for us at the very center of heaven, the essence of heaven, the deep joy of heaven will all emanate from being with Christ, from seeing him, from fellowshipping with him, from worshipping him. This was tremendous encouragement for these first century readers, wasn't it? Many of them were displaced. Perhaps they had been driven out of Rome in AD 60 and, and had to come to this region of Turkey. In those days, savings and wealth was in land and houses. They'd lost everything. Dear the apostle is writing to them about the real treasure, this inheritance that is theirs, this unfading, this undefiled, and this imperishable. What a corrective to us 
if we are short in cash and we are struggling to make ends meet and we are poor, that our treasure is in heaven, not in bricks or in fields or in saving his accounts, we are heirs of this glorious and eternal inheritance. And lastly, salvation. The third element of which we are an heir, identified in verse 5, is salvation. He uses the, the Greek word for a third time, ice, unto, for, for a salvation yet to be revealed. And you say, well, I am already saved. And this is a, a tremendous claim, and, and ministers love to hear people making that claim. We are saved in this present time, Ephesians 2 verse 8, by grace you are saved. Or someone else might say salvation also concerns at the present time and our journey to heaven. We are being saved. And 1 Corinthians 1 18 uses salvation in that sense to us who are being saved, that verse says. But the most common usage of salvation in the Bible is in a future sense, as here. Salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The future complete salvation of believers. What we have now is just the starter. The main course is still to come. But what does this promise salvation look like? What will it be like to be saved in its fullness and magnitude in the glory of heaven? Salvation is one of these big words in the Bible and it's used in a wide range of ways and that helps us and informs us in this very moment as we consider the glory of heaven. In Matthew 9, 21, it's used of being saved from physical sickness. I will be made well, the woman says, who touched the hem of his garment. It's used in being saved from danger. And Matthew 8, 25, save us, Lord, we are perishing, the disciples pray. It's been used in the sense of being saved from the condemnation by God. In Matthew 10, 22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. But it's used in the sense, as we know at this time, of being saved from the power of sin. In Matthew 1, 21, he shall save his people from their sin. These uses of being saved help us to understand what heaven will be like. Saved from danger. Saved from illness. Saved from condemnation. Saved from propensity or ability to sin. We will be saved in the fullest and deepest sense of the word, the salvation ready to be revealed at the last day. Some years after the death of Alexander the Great, the Macedonians besieged the city of Rhodes. They had impressive war machinery, so large was one of their towers. Three and a half thousand men were required to move it to the walls. They stayed there for six years. But the city of Rhodes was saved. It looked improbable and unlikely. But the Allies came after six years and they saved the city of Rhodes from the Macedonians. And we will be saved. In the fullest, deepest, widest sense of the term. 
from illness, from danger, from condemnation, from sin. Perhaps you're here and you're not yet a Christian. Think of what it will be like not to be saved in that sense after death. What will it be like to be outside of heaven, lost, not saved, suffering physically and not healed, in danger and not safe, condemned and not blessed, dominated by sin and not delivered. There are only two destinies beyond death, salvation or outside of salvation. And only those of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior who died on the cross for our sins will enter that state of salvation described here. And I urge you to sort out this matter today. Not to keep putting it off. Repent of your sins before God and believe in his son, Jesus Christ, for current and future salvation. And all of you who come to Jesus will be received and saved. The anger and tragedy around the three hostages who were killed in Gaza is that they were holding a white flag. They wanted peace. They wanted safety. They wanted salvation and protection, but they were killed. But if you want peace with God, if you desire his salvation through Jesus Christ, you will be received. You will be saved by him. As Christians, we are heirs of life, inheritance, salvation. This is no mere theological, academic intellectual study divorced from the trials of our lives. Its importance and relevance is real. This past week, my auntie was buried last Sabbath afternoon. On Thursday, I attended a funeral in the morning. On Thursday afternoon, I learned about Ruth's uncle dying. On Friday, I met a bereaved family. On Friday, my neighbor passed away. On Saturday, I took the funeral of Ruth's uncle. I've been forced to think about life after death this week, not in an academic way, but in a real practical way, and to speak with comfort to the bereaved. No doubt, so have you. And if you haven't been involved with grief recently, you soon will be, for such is our life. But what is our perspective on those who've departed? What are we saying to grieving families and people? Are our views just wishful thinking? Or do we have this solid hope for ourselves and comfort for those who are mourning? Children of God are heirs of life, inheritance. Let this paragraph inform our view of the afterlife. The Christian is an heir of life, of inheritance, and of salvation. But the closing question is, are you?